I remember my first publication, my mom called me and said, how much did you get paid for publishing that? And I said, negative, <laughs> negative dollars, mom. And she was like, why are you doing this? And I said, all right, it's for the exposure. Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we publish and perish. Um, my name is Sienna. I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. And my name is Om. I'm no, I'm doing my postdoc now. <laughs> I'm gonna start, just gonna start saying that now. Do my postdoc now, with, now with Pfizer. Um, nice. Uh, and I'm wrapping up my PhD in the next month. Very excited. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, welcome to the podcast. We normally do big episodes on sciencey topics. Uh, today we're going to do a science adjacent topic, a science close to our hearts topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case you couldn't guess from the tagline, it's going to be about academic publishing and the pros and cons of academic publishing. Yep, and I think you know your statement really puts it. Very literally, where it's publish or perish if you want to, you know, keep uh, pushing the academic, I'll put it, boundaries, right, of research. Yeah, exactly. So for all our listeners who might not be in research or very familiar with the research process, the main pipeline, I guess, to success, or at least to continuing to do research, is the produce results, do experiments, follow up on a story, identify something that you're excited about, produce more results about that, produce a concise little neat story where you show probably that one gene is associated with one phenotype and it's related to a specific developmental process or to a biochemical process or to a disease. And that's a nice little story. And then you take that story and you write it up you write up a results section detailing all of the experiments you did and what your findings were. You write up a discussion about how it ties into things other people have done and what's been previously known about those things that you're studying. And obviously the way I'm describing this is for very much a biomedical, biochemical audience because that's what I particularly know, but I'm fairly sure in my <laughs> look into the literature that it's mostly similar for other disciplines as well, especially in sciences, maybe not so similar I guess for like social sciences or epidemiology, there might be some other approaches, but I mean, you'll still probably find the results section and the discussion section. And then you create this beautiful little document that contains all of your results, contains your analyses of them, contains your ideas of what they mean for the field. And now comes the fun part. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Here we go. So you take this document that you've created, you've written, you've put all the work into and you have to find a suitable place to publish it. And you can look through the literature to see what kind of journals would apply to that research. Obviously, depending on the field you're in, that's going to change the type of journal you're going to take it to. So if you're in medicine, you might want to go to the New England Journal of Medicine. Whereas if you're in ecology, you might want to go to like Ecologia, I think is a journal in there. But uh, there's you know different journals for different fields. There's some big journals that take articles from all fields. These are like the massive well-known journals that you may have heard of, even if you're not in science, like science (laughs) and nature and cell. And then you submit it to their publication system and see if it can get published with them. Yeah, I think a big part of that is like, that's the whole legacy journals versus niche journal debate as well, right? Yes, exactly. You'll reach a huge audience, right, with a legacy journal because everyone reads mm-hmm. them. Um, but it might get lost in the sauce of all the other topics. But if you publish in a niche journal, uh, and I guess we'll mm-hmm. get into the dynamics of how they differ yeah. a little later. But if you publish a niche journal, the people who love that topic will read that. So you'll be hitting the right audience. Exactly. And yeah, we'll talk about the pros and cons and the different features of different journals a bit later on. But once you submit it to a journal, I guess, then you have to go through all of these processes to find out if your article 
is essentially what the journal is looking for. So it's a little bit of a dating simulator, I guess, but yeah. very one-sided because yeah. one person is in high demand and you probably are not in high demand, essentially. Um, and you have to go through a peer review process, which is, you know, part of the whole point of academic publishing is to go through this process. So this, I think, is like the main uh, attraction, aside from, you know, the different... Um, the different reach of academic journals to other people. Obviously, you want your research to be read, so that's another attraction. But one of the main attractions and points of academic publishing is so that before your paper is published, you can receive feedback on it and revise it so that it's more robust or that your results seem more um, appropriate or they can provide you know additional experiments for you to do. And so this process can take anywhere from probably six months to like five years, depending on... <laughs> depending on the reviews you get, depending on how many rejections and revisions you go through. And then finally, you'll find a journal that says, yes, we will publish you. Here are the changes you've made slash will have to make. Then you go through the editorial process, your paper gets edited. And finally, uh, you'll get to see it online. It used to be majorly in print. That used to be the way journals circulated, but definitely not so much anymore. I don't really know how many more, like how many journals these days actually still have printed copies Very of these rare. articles. And that's the process. Then you put it on all of your CVs, your websites, your grant applications, and you right. keep going, doing research, following up, and producing more articles to publish. So I think what the fun part of this story is, uh, that maybe the listeners will be interested in. And I think part of what we're going to discuss today is you would think that academic publishing as a business could not survive without academic articles. And you would be right because that is what they do. They publish academic articles. So you might think then that the academic article is a commodity that the journal has to pay for to publish because they want to be able to publish academic articles. And it sounds like maybe that would be the direction of the exchange, maybe. Well, like we see that all the time, you know, with other, you know, if you're an author, you know, you write your book, publishing company buys the, uh, the words you put out. I'm not an expert on this, but they buy it and then you make them. So you make some money, right? And they'll often even just buy like your future work and give mm. you an advance to write a novel for them because they know that they can make money off of your novel or right. whatever you're publishing. And same with journalists who write articles and get paid to do so. Funny enough, this is not the case in academic publishing, and I don't think ever has been. It's completely the opposite. So at the step where you have been told you can publish in an academic journal and your, journal, your article that you've submitted is accepted, that's when you have to pay the publishing fee to get your article published there. And uh, this cost can range from anywhere from like $300 US to like 10,000 US dollars. It's, it's moving up even higher. Uh, neuroscience, the journal, like Nature Neuroscience is now mm -hmm. pushing up to 16K in certain scenarios. So it's, it's getting crazy. Yes. And so, yeah, we're going to discuss that today, why the system is the way that it is, and what changes are hopefully coming through the pipeline to change it. Because I don't know about you, Am, but like spoiler warning for my attitude towards this whole episode is I don't think this is a functional system. Um, so I was reading up on this like process. There's a lot of things that are coming through the pipelines to adjust this. But basically, one of the things that I noticed, first of all, is that um, in terms of profit range for academic publishing companies, they typically range 30 to 40 percent profit for their publishing services, which is unreal. Yeah, and like really good really high, especially for any sort of publishing company. And they can achieve this because not only not only are you paying them to publish your article, but they also, a lot of them rely on <laughs> volunteer free labor to do a lot of these services. So I read a really neat paper that kind of broke down all of the possible costs associated with publishing a paper. And they essentially found that depending on how many articles you publish a year, so obviously the more articles you publish a year, the less your costs per article are because mm -hmm. of like the uh, costs associated with getting bundled um, discounts, essentially. Uh, this can range from anywhere between like it costing around $150 to publish an article to around seven to $800 to publish an article. Right. And 
which is remarkably low if then you consider that the <laughs> the price that you're paying to publish your article is oftentimes higher than that. But also, like I said, the peer review process, which relies on uh, you know experts in your field reading your paper and providing comments and concerns about it, is all volunteer. There's no mm -hmm. place that really provides paid opportunities for peer review. And this is due to, I guess, kind of this idea that it has to be um, free to preserve the integrity of science, I suppose. And it means that, you know, publishing companies don't have to pay people to review articles. Yeah, I think my supervisor described it as an unspoken agreement between you and the journals, right? And you and the yeah. scientific community as a doctor or as a PhD that you will help review these articles, right? Yeah. And I think, I don't know that, you know, aside from the fact that there's kind of this overwhelming burden on scientists to provide a lot of free services that can get quite tiresome and quite difficult to do alongside your already like full-time job of being a scientist and producing these results. You know, I don't think scientists are particularly opposed to doing peer review overall. We want to provide feedback on experiments, especially if they're related to our work, because that's how you advance science and you learn and you make things better. And we appreciate getting it done on our work too often. Depends on how nice the reviewers are. But yeah. um, another factor that you then have to consider in this whole process is often the editors of these journals are also volunteer. <laughs> so a lot of scientists get on the editorial board of journals or are asked to join editorial boards of journals. And so then provide, you know, editorial comments and sort of bench decisions about articles before they go to peer review or after they come out of peer review. And this work is also unpaid. Okay. So the marginal, again, this just like brings down the costs of publishing even more. And this definitely varies journal to journal. Not all journals um, have editors that are unpaid, but a lot of them do have editorial boards that contain just volunteer scientists who are on it for the prestige, maybe. Not sure why people do this, actually. <laughs> this part, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, again, I think a lot of this is tradition in a in a mm -hmm. weird sense, and also to you know, your prestige is based on how many places your name is. Uh, yes, I also want true. to add the editor is typically the point of contact between the principal investigator, like the head of a lab, academic lab, mm -hmm. and the journal, right? So you submit your yeah. paper, and an editor will reach out to you, and their job as well is to decide, you know, does your journal meet the criteria or the interests. It's not your journal, exactly. your article. If, uh, does that yeah. meet the interest of the journal that you're hoping to publish within? Yeah, exactly. And I guess also another part of the reason is that some journals, which are kind of niche or come out of specific fields or disciplines, their editors are then people who actually probably initiated the start of that journal or initiated mm -hmm. the start of the society that started that journal. So there's sort of a link between also then scientific societies journals and the editors that yeah. you know you can imagine gives a reason for why they're unpaid because often you're also you would volunteer to be on a society that is of interest to you as well so mm. of course you want to connect with researchers in your field and provide events for each other and you know get in touch with each other's research and you would probably do this for free or volunteer and depending on like your position in it mm. and the same thing then that kind of like siphons editors towards these journals that are also associated with these societies so i mean i can think of like the multiple sclerosis society i guess there's like a multiple sclerosis journal and then there's also like the journal of neurochemistry is um produced published by the international society for neurochemistry uh, of course science has its own scientific yeah. society called the american academies for the advancement of science That's aas right. There's PNAS, there's PNAS, Proceeding of National uh, Academy of Sciences, is that right? Or, yeah, I can't remember I think that right. so. But they have the NAS, which is their little committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's a very interesting system um, and very broken. So essentially what this means is that, you know, journals who publish articles make pretty large profit margins. There's also sort of this, like, uh, the pro the profit margins and the costs of this come out of both the investigators who have to pay to have their uh, papers published, but then also out of the university libraries who have to pay to access journals as well, because you'd think maybe the journal's content would be then freely distributed since they're making money off of the publication of them, but 
No, that's not the case. Most, most in the past have been pay to access. Currently, a lot are still pay to access, although there's a move away from that as well. Yeah. Um, but this essentially means that libraries at universities, if they want to have access to research that is published in a journal, they have to pay the yearly subscription fee for that journal. Which is a lot, typically. Which is a lot. And not only that, um, I mean, then there's the case of certain journal publishing societies, I guess, that will bundle journals together. So they'll sell you like free journals that would be of high interest, but you also have to pay the subscription cost for like 20 other journals that are irrelevant and oftentimes like not even high quality, don't produce good research, maybe have like bad publishing practices, but you have to buy them all. It's an inflated subscription cost. Yeah. And there's like no way to just pick and choose the specific journals that you want access to as a university. I think if you ask most scientists whether or not this should be the case, I think we all idealistically would say all research should be open and whatever. Um, I do want to add there are ways um, for authors like ourselves to decide, you know, we want our um, paper to be open access on your journal. But what happens in those scenarios is that then the fee of that being open access, the burden of that falls on the authors once again. And so we pay a little bit of a premium um, to allow for our uh, for our uh, uh, articles to be free to the public. Um, there's also the side irony of that, which is that some journals pride themselves on being open access, but they, again, have a surcharge or a premium fee to publish in their journals so that they can maintain their open access, despite all these profit yeah. margins. So it's just like problems compounding on problems. But essentially mm -hmm. what it boils down to is that, you know, everyone pays to access research articles and the money that you're paying is often public research funding yes. because it comes from research funding. If you're going to pay a publication fee, it comes from public money. If you're going to pay, like if the, a library or university is going to pay to subscribe and this is going majority into not like more research funding or not into being redistributed into future experiments or whatever, or act like this is going into profit margins of shareholders of mm -hmm. academic companies, publishing companies, which is kind of wild to think about. So yeah, um, you brought up a great point about open access, which again is something we should talk about while we're talking about yeah. publishing. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, you know, libraries do have to pay a subscription, but as you alluded to, some journals will publish without a subscription or paywall associated with it. So anyone can access the article. But like you said, these come with a premium fee that you have to pay to publish there. So not only, so for the case of, again, if we're talking about countries where they have less money dedicated to research and have less resources to pay these fees, suddenly it goes from, well, we can't access research because there's a paywall to, well, we can't publish our research because there's a premium associated with the fee. Yeah. So it actually creates a different separate problem that again, just prevents, you know, equity of access to research and research promotion and the like you have to be able to publish unfortunately you have to be able to publish your articles currently in these types of journals because there are like major pros to publishing and open access which is that everyone can see it so it comes with higher citation rates which is sort of the currency of being an academic yeah we'll get to that so the too, more yeah. your article gets read and cited the more prestige you get as a researcher because people start to recognize your name and people you know you can like create a little index essentially of like <laughs> how often you've been cited and yeah. use this as like uh, bragging rights but also like put it on your grant applications and mm -hmm. get more research funding that way so there's a cycle of you know what researchers need to advance their careers that is intrinsically tied into the profits of academic publishing companies absolutely and there's not a lot of good ways to get around this currently. Yeah, and the I think the ultimate outcome of this is that researchers' success is not necessarily tied so much, I'm gonna be careful with this, but with the <laughs> impact that they have on, for example, their field, but more so on where they publish, how much money they had, which is tied yeah. to some degree on you know what they've done in the past, but for example, a journal that has open access with a high impact factor, which we can talk about later, 
yeah. then will lead to you also get you know benefiting from that. So you will then be accessible. People love that journal, so people will likely cite you, and that will advance your career uh, as well. Exactly. So. And people are also more likely to have subscriptions to these major journals and therefore read them. Um, I think this brings us around to maybe an interesting question is, why do researchers then depend at all on academic publishing companies in the system? Because obviously we are producing the research that we're interested in and like we have a a hold on it you know the publisher can't actually make money unless you give them your paper to publish so why are we doing that at all and so i think this brings us into kind of an interesting domain which is that of the peer review system and the reason why researchers want peer review as well as uh you know research integrity so i think historically speaking the reason why you would want to and also, I guess, research access, maybe. The reason why you would want to publish in an academic journal is really the fact that they give you access and force it to go through this peer review system, which means that, you know, two to three members of your scientific community have reviewed your article and your data and said, yes, this is good and valid and seems legit, essentially. And then it's been published. And then the reason why you would want to access and read those articles is because it's been through this peer review system. And it's sort of lauded as the system that prevents bad research from being done and being published so that researchers can avoid the research that is, you know, either done unethically or poorly or is not done at all and just says it's been done in the article that they write up and they can kind of access results that seem to have been deemed more true. I want to quickly add as well, like, I think I think you've nailed on head like a three to two person peer review. When this started as well, like there's the context of the rigor and like how how crazy we were about the research at that time. Um, yeah. And like how much data, I really mean to say, let me correct my previous statement, how much data we could generate yeah. during that time period. Three to two people worked great, you know, and even, even let's say it's the 90s, there was a, you know, a big boom in like next gen sequencing data and all this stuff closer with the millennia but in the 1990s mm -hmm. you could publish a big science paper big nature paper with a few really novel um, novel findings with some what we would now consider very basic um, methodologies yeah. right and exactly. two to three people works great in that scenario works really really great you can look at a couple of blots and get your answer and know wow i feel great about this but now i think and we're going to talk about this as well but i think that they're it's time to change that system. And mm -hmm. there's a reason why people are cozy with it, which we'll, I think, get into as well. Yeah, so I think those are all really good points. Exactly like what you say, the peer review system, especially of like the two to three peer reviewers, worked really well for when articles were shorter, had sort of fewer also just, you know, high, highly technical methodologies that are kind of like very specific to a bunch of different experts and might not even be like, something anyone can review on. But um, it also kind of, you know, for me, it harkens back to this idea of the time, even like pre the 1900s, and especially pre, I mean, pre the 1900s is too far for what I'm about to say next, but just like pre online uh, papers, yeah. which is that, you know, you needed to mail your paper to yeah. other people for them to read it. And because there was, you know, there was just less, there's less access to talking except like instant communication and instant feedback on things, of course, because mm -hmm. we didn't have the internet. And so, you know, you wanted to make sure in the context of your research that what you were doing and what you're saying, you know, wasn't completely nonsense. Un nonsense, right? And the only other person or the other few people who might be able to tell you that you'd have to mail your paper to because you might be located in England and they would be in these states, you know, these like historical research powerhouses for particular mm. reasons like uh, colonialism and Western exceptionalism. But, mm. you know, this is like in the context and history of the Western scientific development, this is what you would have to do is you would have to reach out to these experts in other countries or in even your country, but pretty far away and try and get feedback. And it would be like a long time correspondence that you'd want to have because you can't necessarily just talk to somebody face to face right away. And you definitely can't just 
send them an email. Exactly. <laughs> that would that would take a while to be developed later on. So snail mail. <laughs> there there was this like really de- high dependence on, you know, you wanted somebody else to check your work before you said it was real or said it was mm. true or. A lot of people did. I'm not going to say everybody in that time, <laughs> that. but you know, people wanted to be validated by their peers and yeah. that's how that was approached. Um, but well, yeah, as you were saying nowadays, I think it's, it's grown into a very archaic system that we still depend on because of this belief that, um, you know, the only research that could possibly be true is research that has been peer-reviewed. There's this idea that if your research has not gone through the rigor of peer review, you know, it's it's much more likely to be falsified or just poorly done, poorly executed, and therefore not sort of a true observation of the nature of the world and whatever you're right. trying to report on in your research, right? Um, but as I think you were alluding to, um, I, I don't believe this. As a new generation scientist, I don't believe that <laughs> at all. Yeah. I don't... Um, believe that at all and there's a bunch of reasons why but i think it's interesting how that system ties us still to then the our very archaic system of academic publishing which you know extracts profits at an unreasonable rate from pretty much public research funding and also then prevents public from accessing the research as well through paywalls Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i don't know if you had any thoughts you wanted to add to that part it's undoubtedly, I think the stats are on our side. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of retracted articles are coming from legacy journals, generally speaking. Yes. Um, that's a, you know, that's a big problem. Uh, it tells you that peer review, while it's a, I'm not going to say like, hey, let's never not peer review, but I will say that it is not the final stop gate. And what we need now, and what I think COVID as well um, mm-hmm. during this time has exposed to us is that the scientific community after publication needs to have more of a say um, and that we need to ultimately and um, we need to I guess bolster the retraction or secondary review or you know public Mm -hmm. review components of things and journals need to be more receptive to that yeah 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 and I think it's interesting yeah like you say I don't think peer review should be thrown away I think peer review is really useful Mm -hmm. Um, I think to me again like if I think about my belief of like what research looked like and how it was done when it first started in this format, you were usually one person, maybe two, working on a subject. So you were going to publish a paper all alone with your mm-hmm. only one name on it. And of course, you wanted to look it over. But nowadays, there's entire consortiums of like hundreds of researchers who all work on a paper. And I often wonder to myself what level especially with the usually these then types of like consortium based um research are these highly technical studies that like use massive amounts of data in like brand new ways and require the technological expertise of those 100 people in some way or another on them to produce these really dramatic and exciting papers but where does adding two or three external people to that where does the value come in especially at the cost of academic publishing. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, we need to think of new ways to approach the peer review process and approach Mm -hmm. publishing because I, there, it's remarkable to me that people still think there's some like, also in my experience with peer review, often the people who get your paper aren't necessarily you know, the, the fields are so niche nowadays and the techniques so niche, the people who get your paper to review aren't necessarily actually that big of experts in it. True. And so sometimes what they ask for is also almost unreasonable within the realm of your uh, research. I feel like the classic like reviewer two statement is like, redo the whole paper, but in this other yep. model. And that doesn't even make sense. Like why why redo all of the results in a different model just to publish one research paper? Like that's not necessarily a useful peer review on what you've done. It's just a comment on do more to mm. sort of earn my belief, yep. which is also sort of an interesting feature of the system. Yeah. And that happens often. I mean, I would say almost, you know, from my personal experience, both of my later articles that I was fortunate mm-hmm. to publish, the big demand was, do it again, like do it again yeah. and another system, do it again, another system. And while I can understand how that bolsters your personal results, right? 
that can bolster yeah. like the um, the h- how that result can take place in many different instances. Yeah, I think as a scientific community, our goal is to you know take what you're given, see how to help uh, improve what is given in front of you to publish, mm-hmm. and the scientific community as a whole will repeat that and will do it in other ways, and that's a whole other the reproducibility uh, conversation as well. Yeah, um, is a whole other complication, but I don't. I, I'm more understanding to the reproducibility issue than I am to this. Uh, what I would call the sins <laughs> of the uh, of the the public the publisher or the journals, right? If we can talk about the impact factors, right? That that component yes. of things, right? And how that mm-hmm. really incentivizes how scientists approach which journal they're going to go to, and ultimately how yeah. the peer review might go or might not go, depending on that, right? Mm-hmm. So for yeah. the for the listeners, I guess impact factor, what what that means. I mean, Sam, do you know what an impact factor is generally speaking? Um, yeah. So generally speaking, an impact factor is a sort of number mm-hmm. given to a journal, and this number is calculated based on how many citations the articles that are published in that journal throughout the year get. So it's like the idea that the more citations the articles get that your journal published, the more impact it's having on the field because people are reading and citing that data for their own research and data. Um, And it creates these, you know, numerical metrics of the uh, perceived importance of specific journals. But, you know, there's problems that come with this, as you were mentioning before, of course, of like the idea of legacy versus niche journals. Um, Journals that are very close to your discipline that are niche and specific to you will never have high impact factors because in terms of the number of researchers that are going to read, cite those articles, it's it's going to be a niche number of them. You know, there's going to be a subset of researchers within the whole field that are going to cite them. However, in the terms of legacy journals that publish articles from all sorts of uh, different disciplines, those are going to be cited in all fields. And then it's going to give that journal a really big impact factor number. And then because researchers are graded essentially for all of the things that they do on the basis of where they publish and how high the impact factor is of the place that they publish, researchers are going to try and send their articles to higher impact factor journals, despite the fact that there's no there's no reason to... <laughs> except for the prestige and the then the access that that prestige gives because people are more likely to try and access that journal because it's prestigious exactly it's like it's a positive feedback loop all based on prestige exactly purely incentivized based off Mm -hmm. you know the readership and ultimately who's going to cite you if if you are a rep and like impact factor also ends up and I don't agree with this at all, but it ends up translating to reputation or reputability. Exactly. Reputability. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of folks have it in their minds, like if this is, if your data didn't come from a legacy journal or didn't come from a highly mm-hmm. uh, accepted journal within the field, then we can't trust, you know, we can't necessarily trust the data, which is unfortunate because we're putting, you know, a lot, a lot of research is uh, yeah. published all over the place. So why should we really be cherry picking? Uh, in that way to jump right in on this idea too i think it's again important to hear when we're talking about legacy journals and why they're famous and why they're legacy and why they're popular and why people want to publish in them and why they're prestigious is because again before the internet and before we had even bigger research funding allocations as well even you know libraries all over had to had a limited number of journals that they could subscribe to and they were print journals and they got, you know, the print journal into the library every single month or however often it was published. And those were the articles you had access to read because you could not access the articles online. You only could get the ones that were published and mailed to you and you could only get the ones that you wanted or like could very specifically subscribe to. And so people were subscribing to legacy journals, these big journals that published important results And this was all they could access, you know, or like the, no matter what, no matter where you were, you probably could access those because they were deemed important. And then the sort of more niche journals, you had less 
you had more limited access to. You might have, you know, if you were an ecologist and you really wanted an ecologist publication, you might have a personal subscription or you might have like negotiated with your library to get your subscription to something. But like, again, the more niche you went, the less likely your library was to have a subscription to that journal, which was Absolutely. again, physical and it had to be mailed to you and you had to like physically read the journal. But it doesn't reflect the technology we have now, which is that all articles are online predominantly. I Barely any produce print yeah. publications. And not only that, they're all indexed online. So you can find even where to find them online. Whether or not there's a paywall now is like the other question, but, um, and whether or not there's a backdoor is the third question. Yeah. But there's no reason now if libraries have access to, you know, buying larger bundles of journals and a lot of them anyways are open access and you don't need to pay anything to access that data and you can just google it and find it it's again like if you it's a historical remnant essentially of exactly. the way the system functioned pre-internet i think it's just shocking to me i always think about this problem of publishing and it just it's always evident that um you know we have not adjusted to the changes we have in technology in a like exciting way you know we yeah. could have revolutionized the way research is done and published but we haven't done that instead we've just resorted to trying to keep the system we already had exactly and so i want to bring up two really quick things about the impact factor the first being like mm -hmm. how ingrained it is in our culture i think most in the scientific yeah. culture most scientists understand that this is nonsense like i think we yeah. understand that this is silly but it it is what is these these numbers these facts mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them are tied to our career and success as scientists yes. in a way that's beyond us to a degree right yeah. like if you have an uh, what i'm going to call an old head or older professor <laughs> right they may you know they they will also because their career was made based on these metrics will also lean on these metrics to you know pick new yeah. uh, newer students to the degree that I was on Reddit, Lab Rats. Shout out to the yes. folks on R slash Lab, Lab Rats, my favorite subreddit. Um, people were asking, you know, I'm thinking about going into academia. Should I aim for one major publication or three smaller publications? And while mm -hmm. everyone can acknowledge three public, the merit of those three publications may not be less than that one, but getting a high tier legacy journal, even one, may yeah. make your career, right? Exactly. And, I, I'm pretty sure it made mine. Like I got one, I was 10th author on one article that was published in a high tier journal. And because of that, and like, I'm not saying my, my contribution was minor in the context of that paper. I did contribute, but like that is, I'm fairly certain what got me, you know, especially the initial grant funding for my master's project and probably like definitely helped my, <laughs> applications to grad school and applications to, you know, volunteer labs when I was in my undergrad to this fact that I'd worked on towards this paper that was going to be published in a high impact factor journal. Like these are the things, even as, even as 10th author, which is like authorship rank, quick discourse, quick guide to how to judge authors. The first author did the most work. The second author did a lot of work. Sometimes there's two co-firsts, which means they did a shared amount of work. The last author is the one who supervised and provided the funding to do the work. Sometimes, again, there's two of those, depending on collaborations between labs. And everybody in between is ranked essentially by the amount of the contribution they gave. But this gets really hard to rank anyways, because by the time, you know, if you if you have a lot of authors on a paper, you know, the contributions are kind of like small compared to the overall paper, no matter no matter whether you're ninth or tenth, like probably the contribution was kind of small. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like my contribution was small, but it it made a big splash because it was a big high impact factor journal. Exactly. <laughs> Did I come up with the idea for the research and like that was this groundbreaking? No, I just came on board like midway through the paper and did some of the experiments. So the second half of what I want I want to add on to exactly what you're saying is that so why do these journals have these big impact factors in the mm -hmm. first place? Now. I think of the highest impact factor I've ever seen, which is something like a 97 or something like that, mm -hmm. which is like NEDGEM, New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. Now, NEDGEM is, I want to, I'm not going to, no shade to them at all. They are genuinely yeah. so niche and so specific to medicine 
that I think yeah. they probably deserve that 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 uh, impact factor. But I I'm not uh, an expert on. I don't really read NetGem very often, uh, or as yeah. much as I should. But when I think about the legacy uh, papers like Cell, Science, um, Nature, a lot of the reason why their impact factors are so high, you know, pushing into the 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm is a lot of self-citation, ironically. There's a feed-forward mm-hmm. cycle within themselves, right? Where they, not just not just from uh, article to article, but in terms of reviews, in terms of mm-hmm. news and views, right? Those count yes. as citations and bump yeah. the numbers. So every time there's an article, a big article published by Nature, they will follow up with the news and views, like a more um, lay um, version of the article for the public to see. I'm sometimes yeah. still behind a paywall, but <laughs> um, and they also have a whole commentary section, which is fine. Like you know, like any, yeah. like they're almost acting like a newspaper or a print, exactly. a larger print, and in doing so, in bolstering their own journal, they end up having this massive impact factor that's effectively inflated mm-hmm. to a large degree when you remove all of these self citations and secondary uh, components. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah, so we can see how this whole system is just feed forward, and it's honestly just driving itself at this point. But I do think yeah. there is there are um, there are means for change to get our incoming. So let's talk about the future then. So I think one thing that we kind of we've touched on a little, but maybe haven't covered in deep depth, is the idea of open access mm-hmm. journals. So essentially, as we've been saying you know, open access removes the paywall. Anyone can access and read the journal, but we've also mentioned that it comes with an extra cost to publish the journal. The, I guess because the journals can't make a subscription fee off of it, they pass that on to the yeah. people who are trying to publish their articles in there and make them pay a premium to publish it as open access. There's sort of two different modes. So there's journals that are completely open access and only um, publish open access. And these actually typically have lower fees for publishing articles than and publishing open access articles, if all they publish is open access, Mm -hmm. then what are called hybrid journals, which offer you the option of publishing open access or not. So it costs more to publish an open access article in a journal that offers the option of not publishing open access than it costs to just publish an open access in an open access journal. Um, But, you know, we also mentioned that these extra fees lead to different challenges for different researchers and again, still just siphon away funds that like could go to more research, could go to paying more students to conduct more research. Um, so some of the alternatives that have been made, and I guess part of the reason why we mentioned that it even matters to publish is the peer review system, but um, hopefully we'll come up with creative ideas to solve that. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the current solutions that are happening is this push towards preprints. So publishing your article online before it's published in a journal. and Again, the reason why this wasn't done sooner was essentially because it comes without peer review. So you can publish your article. I think one of the first ones to do this was the physics preprint server, which was is called archive, A-R-X-I-V.com. And on there, you can go and look and anyone who has a physics paper and you know works in the field of physics and wants to do this can upload their paper to the archive and you can find, you know, new exciting results in the field of physics as people upload and publish their articles. Um, Now there's also bioarchive, so for bio papers, and medarchive for medical papers. But people are, (laughs) because of the legacy publishing system, people are nervous about these not only because they lack peer review, but also they come with the prospect of your research being stolen and published in the legacy system without you actually getting around to doing it yourself. So often people still don't upload their papers to preprint until they're also submitting at the same time to a a journal, which is an interesting dilemma to find ourselves in. In fact, it's becoming ingrained in that system. So BioArchive now, um, and MedArchive, I believe, but I'm going to focus on BioArchive, is now working with EMBL or EMBO, right? To do effectively a submission through BioArchive first, followed by a more significant um, peer review, then published into one of the uh, EMBO papers, right? And they're making significant efforts as well to try try and address this, like, 
this issue of open access and preprint and all this stuff. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on. And in fact, they're working, ironically, this may not be a good thing, so you can tell me or not, but they're working with the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation, right? Oh, uh, yeah. And they do a lot of um, funding to help keep these things be mm-hmm. free. Um, how that's going to look in the future, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping for the best, yeah. but so far, so good, right? This is, I think this yeah. is a very valuable uh, service and we get to see the data uh, early, I think even in mm-hmm. pharma, in industry, we rely on these papers to, to a large degree because, you know, if we're trying to get ahead of the curve, develop a therapy, know who to collaborate with, know who's on yeah, the exactly. cutting edge. BioArchive is probably one of the best resources for that. Exactly, exactly. And so I think, yeah, I guess, um, you know, talking about preprints and publishing without peer review, we haven't, you know, there, there is sort of an epidemic in a sense, or at least a significant proportion of papers that are published that are falsified results, essentially. And so people want to avoid these and get around it. And they think that legacy publishing techniques will do that because of the peer review system. But uh, in my experience, you know, there's enough retractions and findings in these publishing systems that aren't spotted by peer review. That mean, it doesn't seem like it's working in the sense in the way that it should. And it doesn't necessarily matter because then there's also predatory publishing journals that if you pay them a fee, they'll publish your paper no matter what. Yeah. And it's not necessarily easy to tell whether a journal is predatory or not when you're trying to read the articles and evaluate whether or not their data is good. And they get you know, archived to these online places where you can find all of the articles as well, just as often as the articles that have been peer reviewed do. So there's no necessarily good way to distinguish between a fake published result and a real published result. Even if you know where it was published and know whether or not it was predatory, you can't necessarily know for sure. Um, so those are the problems <laughs> with publishing. I want to add as very quickly yeah. just um, about like this kind of, you know, the system, because it incentivizes quick publication, lost publication, I think you nailed our head. Oftentimes people may, whether by accident or it's on purpose, may do image duplication, may falsify results, mm-hmm. may duplicate results, whatever may happen, right? And I want to shout out Retraction Watch, okay, for this. Yeah. And also Elizabeth Bick. Uh, if everyone should follow her on Twitter, I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. at uh, Microbiome Digest. But yes, she goes out and she finds all these articles. I think she has photographic memory or something. She has, she has something yeah. I don't, okay? Where she can find the, these articles from years ago and find duplications in current articles or will find mm-hmm. duplications within an article. So sometimes yeah. these are by accident. Sometimes they're um, not. They're, sometimes they're not. And I think yeah. that makes a lot of this, this idea of retraction and like taking back articles, you know, you can understand how a publisher is hesitant to do those kinds of things. They yeah. they feel that their system, the peer review system, is, hey, it's as good as it gets. We're, we've we've reached Valhalla. Like it doesn't get better than this. Yeah. But when we find these issues after the fact, because we live in an internet age, because scientists are c- connected to each other in ways that we weren't, like with Twitter, mm-hmm. it's very easy to find. Or it's not. I shouldn't say easy, but it's easier now to find. Um, issues in an article that could be addressed by the authors or mm-hmm. be pulled by the journal if the journals yeah. were a little bit more um, open or amenable to re-looking at their re-looking at what's yeah. published um, I want to say really quickly like one of the, the leaderboards uh, <laughs> I'll look at this very quickly but in New, New England Journal of Medicine uh, in 2018 they had a paper retracted and it had over 1,900 citations at that time. Oh, my God. Um, and, of course, New England Journal of Medicine was hesitant to publish. Like, that's going to impact their impact factor, right, as we discussed. Yeah. It's going to have a heavy uh, toll on them. Um, but it was – there seemed to have been falsified or duplicated data. So, in the end, mm-hmm. uh, they retracted it. Um, so, that's a good instance. But a lot of times nowadays, you know, I as a – civilian or as another scientist can contact the journal and say hey there are these issues and it may take months mm-hmm. if not years before that article is even tagged for an issue so i see that as a major major point uh yeah um, and where we can fix things i think you're right in that there's sort of an immutable property to published articles in the way they are in that once they're published through this traditional system and they're again, I think it comes with the idea that they used to be printed. And that was the final version. Mm-hmm. That was complete. That was the research. This is now true because it's printed and it's 
published and out there, it creates an immutable property where nobody ever wants to admit that maybe they should be changed because maybe there was something wrong. Maybe there was something duplicated. Maybe there was a mistake. And, you know, small corrections are made all the time, especially with yeah. the online print things now, which is fine. But there is a lot of, you know, it's really easy to make a mistake when putting an article together for publication that you can find and correct later. But like, if it's bigger, you know, this can be, it's, it becomes this large issue where, yes, people don't want to believe or allow allow the property of articles that are published, they don't want to allow them to change. They want them to be stagnant because people have depended on this research and have cited it and have done follow-up studies based on those findings. Exactly. Um, we rely on these these articles as foundational uh, information, exactly. right? If an article is cited 2,000 times, like that's accepted, that, that kind of result mm -hmm. is accepted. But we know, we should know better and be willing to, you know, yeah. fix those results without necessarily throwing the whole thing out. What's the saying? I don't even know. But... Baby with the bathwater, right? Yeah, exactly. Throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> we don't need to do that. Yeah, we need to keep the baby, get rid of the bathwater. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think that I'm like, if you're willing, I want to just talk about, you know, dreams for the future, because I feel like we have a little bit more time to talk. And mm -hmm. I, as a young scientist who maybe, I haven't, I've worked within this legacy system, but I don't care about it. I haven't grown up with it. It hasn't been like the only system I can imagine. And, you know, it's also not the only system other people imagine. So there are a lot of efforts to sort of, you know, invent or create ideas of different methods of publishing altogether. And some of these are like having institutional archives where you submit your article to an institution and then it's published and goes through a post-publication peer review process where people comment on it and provide reviews and then after that and it's available online through your institution or through some sort of like maybe a, like a countrywide network you know there's alternatives to how it could be available but after that then journals can kind of like apply to publish your article in them. Or you can like do both at the same time where you send it to a journal as well as providing it to sort of an institutional repository of articles where it can be commented on. And I think this is like a really interesting idea. I don't necessarily think this is the way forward. There's not necessarily one way forward, but I, as a child of the internet, have always wondered, you know, why we don't have, you know, more changeable ways of accessing and understanding research. And I understand this, the idea, there's, it's tied to this sort of prestige factor of where you need the high impact publication that has to have a whole story to become a prestigious researcher. But it would be so much easier and faster. And I think just, um, and maybe, maybe you'll agree or disagree. I'm going to be interested to hear your response to this idea. But, you know, I feel like it would be so much more exciting for research if it was kind of published and updated and curated as it was ongoing. You know, if labs had access to if they use their lab websites to keep track of their experiments and keep track of their progress on certain projects and their findings you know even if it's not updated with every western blot if it's updated with sort of every small story because i i agree you know there's this fear of being scooped or having your ideas stolen or like claimed by somebody else but i felt i feel like if we had a more online research network that we have access that we could build now because we have the tools to it would be easier to kind of just keep track of your lab's progress in online and like publish these through your institution or publish it through your country and like, um, you know, just then people can keep track of what's happening in labs that do research that's relevant to them. And they could collaborate and network through these methods and be like, oh, I see you published the sort of small research on neuron regeneration. We also do similar things, but in this different model, would you like, like, if you share this reagent, we'd love to see what it does in our model. And then we can kind of create this new story about that. You know, like, I feel like there's much more collaborative, accessible and trans like ways that would allow us to, um, you know, transform as the research transforms to allow the research to be more changing over time, which we don't have right now, because once an article is published, it doesn't really change. Mm -hmm. I think I'm on board Thoughts? with that. I, know, I really like that idea. I think I think the essential premise and what I'm getting a lot of what you're saying is that, you know, collaboration is at the heart of it, dyna being dynamic as well. Um, yeah. 
you brought up a really important thing that I think about a lot, and I think most listeners will be like, "You're crazy, I'm for even saying this." <laughs> I'm I'm okay with saying the crazy thing, the fear of being scooped. Okay, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that uh, exists within science because again, our careers are tied to our publications. Exactly. And just for the listeners, yeah. scooping is someone takes your years, potentially years, or maybe a week long idea mm-hmm. and they end up publishing it prior to you being able to do so um yeah. i would love to see just a, a bigger heart of collaboration uh, in general mm-hmm. if you hear about someone scooping it's if someone's doing similar research to you i hope that you're already working with them and there's yeah. a lot of antagonism in science as a consequence of the current system you know i want to be the expert on neuro regeneration mm-hmm. so i'm not going to talk to anybody and i'm going to do it myself rather than yeah. having a community um do it all together right and figure out the targets together or figure out multiple targets together and mm-hmm. there's less of a worry then about this concept of scooping where we should mm-hmm. be happy you know oh look this person beat me to the punch okay that's great mm-hmm. i'll work on my next thing yeah anything or this ha- is going to apply like this is going to be really useful to apply to my own experiments that i'm exactly. doing in the same vein like wow that saves me time and effort because now i can explore this other aspect of it exactly. and the in the ultimate irony with this current thing is that two articles that publish the same findings that should be a really really good thing that should exactly. not be a bad thing and we look at that and this is the issue with reproducibility right where yeah. every article is unique glamorous mm-hmm. on its own stands alone no one's going to do something like this or we'll do something yeah. maybe close to it but you're essentially not allowed to like you're not allowed to publish the same findings exactly it's redundant it doesn't look as good mm-hmm. it may have impacts on your career and i think that that's a huge mistake that we've made uh long yeah. ago based on this on the culture multiple article multiple labs should be working on the same thing reproducing the mm-hmm. same stuff and if people aren't that that should generate new questions in science and yeah. come with a follow-up now if i think about a solution you know i think that's i think you nailed it like i think preprint should be a big thing whether that's like a nationalized idea or mm-hmm. um, privatized i do think that if it might perfect world right scientists should be getting paid for their um yes their their publication i think that on its own that like yeah what's is a drastic mental change but a small Mm -hmm. change in reality right because we already see it all the time i remember my first publication my mom called me said how much you get paid for publishing that and i said (laughs) negative negative dollars mom and she was like why are you doing this and i said oh yeah it's for the exposure and so i think just that on its own paying researchers for Mm -hmm. their publications would lead to a huge cultural shift just on its own yeah i feel like what you're saying and jumping off of of it solving you know this idea of the scoop problem and creating more collaboration and the ability to then start publishing reproducible results which is a major you know problem in academia at all is whether or not if somebody does an experiment if it can even like we can get those same results again and again and again whether it's reproducible um i love this idea and the way we're going with this because you know the idea of transforming the publication system and it's solving these issues is i can also see it solving other issues we have in academia like the idea that comes from this legacy system of i am the first and expert to publish this you know tomb this i guess tome sorry this tome Mm. this text that's super important and integral to the field and fundamental and it makes me the sole expert on it it would solve that problem of having these scientists who are almost like too big to fail because because then we end up with major issues where these super famous scientists are treated almost like celebrities in the field and it's completely ignored about you know one the fact that all research is done on the backs of the students who are in the lab. You know, it's never one scientist doing all, unless it's a really poorly treated grad student. Yeah, it's exactly. never one scientist it doing everything, yeah. right? It's always multiple people working yeah. towards things who are usually all contributing, not just, you know, technical prowess and like doing the experiments, but are contributing ideas to the work. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like technically, like it's not just techniques that are, shared and belonging to like the research belonging to multiple people that way but intellectually it belongs to many people it's never just one person but we treat it as though it is and i think again like changing the structure and the way that we treat science would change how we view scientists which would be very beneficial especially in the wake 
of the very <laughs> of the David Sabatini case, you know? Yeah. It's like somebody who is lauded for being a big scientist who discovered this one protein, but like, you know, congratulations on your discovery, but everything we do in science is always done by many people. Yeah. And like it's done on the backs of people who did things before you and people do things after it that are just as valuable as carrying on the story, you know, and we ignore that to kind of elevate specific individuals that we think are like, yeah, the celebrities of science. Exactly. And yeah, with the celebrities should be, you know, the workers, people doing the force and yeah. And people who should be paid for it. Exactly. The irony is treating people right forces integrity to exist in science. Um, mm-hmm. A journal that is paying individuals to have their articles come uh, be part of that yeah. journal would force the journal to have higher integrity and care more about yeah. the data and care more about the techniques that are applied. Their their journals, so their their techniques, I have only dreamed of thinking about that are mm-hmm. not published in nature, that are not published in science. They're published in what are lower tier and I'm quotation yeah. marks, folks, um, journals. Mm-hmm but that are groundbreaking right yeah and it's a shame and that that's the shame, it is a shame. Mm-hmm. yeah i really love what you just said there which is like treating people with integrity would lead to more science that has more integrity right mm-hmm. like that's exactly i think the problem of maybe this you know there's there's tons of problems we can discuss and we did discuss in yeah. publishing but you know something as simple as a journal treating their like the people who create the content for their journal with integrity by paying them for creating content and paying them to publish it would just transform already like be a small step towards transforming how we view science exactly. and taking also like creating online accessible resources for science is transforming how we view science and how we collaborate already too and how we access science like these are I think one of the most, again, let's talk about something that's super transformative is um, Sci-Hub. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about it. Hell yeah. Sci-Hub, which is, yeah. you know, uh, illegal. <laughs> it's illegal. Okay? We are not <laughs> recommending its use. Illegal. Okay. I would never recommend yeah, exactly Sci-Hub. No, I wouldn't use it. But it's this one woman who created a website that finds and archives you know, articles that are behind paywalls so that anyone can access them. Like, uh, whether or not it's legal, that's transformative. That is providing access to everyone, no matter, no matter your institutional wealth, no matter who you are in the field and what your library has access to, you can now access research, no matter whether or not you're a scientist, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, yeah, it's things like this that we need to actually apply generally to our field i think in order to create more integrity in science exactly i I think the the system mirrors the individuals right Mm -hmm. when when a system is being exploitative in this case the journal and publishing system Mm -hmm. people are going to find ways to exploit it whether that be for example sci-hub and and that's a good in my opinion a good but illegal exploitation okay (laughs) okay there's going to be people who yeah. will do malpractice and fake results to get into your higher mm-hmm. journal because when you when one person is exploitative, why do I care if I do yeah. something bad to get into that thing? And exactly. that's I think I think we see that and I think we're seeing that happen. But again, like mm-hmm. you said, with the efforts to treat people right, where they have a free uh, service to publish, a more yeah. transparent service, whatever it is, paying people more—that's the whole other big yeah. conversation, right? All these things serve to better um, to better the scientific community as a whole. Exactly. I think like people would people would probably commit a lot less data fraud. Like it's funny to me that people think data fraud will be committed more if like publishing gets easier or yeah. like less reviewed. Because I think people would commit way less because they don't have to have major results to publish anymore. You know, yeah. you could just have like something small. And it would be published and looked at uh, just with as much respect as anything else. You know, yeah. nowadays you have to publish big or else you almost don't matter. And of yeah. course, people are going to feel more pressure to fake results or like alter some statistics. <laughs> when your livelihood is on the line. Yeah. When your livelihood is literally dependent on that. Yeah. If your whole career, not just your current livelihood, but like your whole career 
yeah. is dependent on getting that high impact factor publication during your PhD and postdoc. Exactly. And we, we need to separate those two incentives. Yeah. You know? um, I could talk about this all day, but like, this is part of why yeah. I went to industry. This is part of, you know, that incentive is very much separated when you're treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, even maybe treatment's not different, but money is different in that. I think it equates to <laughs> like livelihood. Unfortunately, that's another mm-hmm. deeper question. But a whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We could do a whole other episode on money. In maybe science, we should. <laughs> maybe why not? Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, I mean, I think that's all I had to cover. I wasn't sure if, if there's anything else you wanted to add. I'm I'm happy it. with this. This is great. This is okay. I think we okay. we did a good <laughs> job, you know, explaining. Uh, how the system yeah. works, getting into how people exploit the system, how it actually looks, and solutions to mm-hmm. that. So I think we we hit it all on the head. Yeah. And I mean, I just hope anyone who's listening, whether or not you're in science, I hope this has been clarifying mm-hmm. for you. I hope it's elucidated the situation, which is my favorite word that is overused in science articles. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I hope you continue to dream big and dream of futures where we don't exploit people in any domain and, you know, particularly in our domain of science too, you know, that extends to us and extends to publishing companies. So let's dream of futures where we have more integrity. Agreed. I'm Sienna. I've been one of your hosts for today's episode. I'm Om. I've been the other host for today's episode. (laughs) And we appreciate you listening. We hope you'll tune in to all of our episodes. If you want to hear more from us, we talk lots more about other real science topics. And yeah, we also have a great episode about the movie Gattaca, which is a little more lighthearted as well. So you can catch us on our social medias at notyetadoctor, or you can email us at phd32b at gmail.com. Yes, that's phd32 numbers. And then the letter B at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you or see you on our socials. And we thank you for listening. Catch you next time.